heard stories about it. I'd heard stories about people gadeando, which was the word for entering at night, clandestinely taking out material, sneaking out again, all under the cover of nightfall. Um, so I'd hear these stories. Um, I'd hear stories about big families who worked there, who kind of controlled it, who was influential. There's plenty of stories of body parts or, you know, dead bodies turning up. And so it really sort of piqued my interest. And that's when I got my first taste for the rubbish or the rikichi, which is the word for what's recovered from the rubbish. This is Patrick O'Hare from Cambridge's Division of Social Anthropology. He spent a year living beside Uruguay's biggest rubbish dump with the people who scour it for anything that is valuable, usable or edible. It's a curiously sort of sweet smell of churned rubbish together, so it's not putrid, it's not like a you know, rotten food or something like that. It's actually quite a peculiar smell that only now and again I get a little smell of when I'm in Cambridge and it reminds me of being at the landfill. Uh, the other day, I think out of a skip, I sort of got this little whiff of it outside uh, Murray Edwards College or somewhere like that. And I was like, oh, that reminds me of the landfill. So it's quite a peculiar smell, not what you'd expect, not completely rotten and putrid and disgusting, but just something uh, you kind of grow curiously attached to, I think. The landfill itself is uh, a couple of hectares big. It's not enormous compared to uh, landfills, for example, in Brazil, or the largest one in Latin America used to be in Rio de Janeiro. The interesting thing about the Montevideo landfill is that it's very close to the city, embedded in the city, even though it's on the outskirts. It's also close to working farms. You have people growing lettuce, and you have everything kind of packed together. So you have quarries, you have working farms, you have neighbourhoods where people are living, you have you know urban centres and shops all within quite a constrained area. Where I live was a housing cooperative, which was made up of a, a relocation of a shantytown. The shantytown used to be set on top of an old landfill. It was a really interesting experiment because um, most of the time resettlement of shantytowns in Montevideo means that families who used to have livestock, for example, were no longer allowed to do that because they lived in flats fully within urban Montevideo. And this uh, experiment actually allowed families to carry on with these uh, rural practices, um, so keeping horses, keeping pigs, keeping chickens, but doing it um, in more hygienic conditions uh, and with on a bigger expanse of land. So I did my field work in the Flo de Maronas and uh, Felipe Cardoso neighbourhoods and that sort of lay just a couple of fields away from the from the landfill itself so the landfill sort of came up in the horizon um, one of the highest points of Montevideo which is quite a low-lying city it was probably about 500 metres from the landfill um, but still very green all around sort of wild almost quite typically Uruguayan Argentinian pampas, so you know, long grass, not many trees, um, quite wet with pools of water and things like that. So actually it was very beautiful to be in the house where I was staying because we had fields in front of us, we had fields behind us, and then only a little bit further back you had the landfill. So some of the images of landfill that you have from quite often in the media that look quite dystopian and you know, everything's contaminated and, and destroyed actually wasn't really the case uh, in my field site close to the landfill, close enough to be able to work, close enough to be able to get there in the morning, close enough to be able to smell it, but, you know, green enough all around for you to have actually quite, in my opinion, a reasonable sort of standard of living and aesthetically quite a beautiful place. 
classificadores, as the, this group of recyclers are known, are uh, regarded in Uruguay as being quite individualistic and also uh, prioritizing their immediate sort of kinship groups over others. You know, people would say, um, mi casa es mi casa, this is my, in my house is my house, I set the, I set the rules in my own house. Um, you know, they're really happy to have their own home, but were in some ways quite individualistic about their projects and their um, ideas of progress, I suppose, as well, quite often progressing as, a, as an individual household rather than as a community to some degree. Um, so despite the fact that many of these people were related, um, they still had this sense of rivalry between different cousins and not necessarily helping each other out. Um, of course, the reverse of that and other times was, was definitely true, where family members really did help each other with childcare, sometimes in different labour projects and things like that. So there was definitely a coexistence of both this rivalry and elements of real solidarity and cooperation. So when I first arrived in the, in the neighbourhood, one of the neighbours offered to put me up on his land and I ended up staying in basically a shack that was being used to keep birds um, mainly. So he had 22 birds, which was quite interesting and <laughs> very noisy and a little bit dirty with uh, the birds all kind of flapping above my head as well. Uh, luckily, within about a week or so, I was able to move out of there and then move into the social worker's house in the housing cooperative and started in earnest to, to fix it up. So I, I, as I made friends with recyclers in the neighbourhood, they would quite often say to me, do you want this, do you want that, this has been recovered. So I managed to get a very, very dirty cooker, uh, which the neighbours sort of denigrated me for, you know, how could I, you know, they, they got things from the rubbish, but they'd never accept something as dirty and useless as that. Um, but I persisted, um, much to their chagrin and to my girlfriends as well. And someone else got me a door for the bathroom, um, and sort of he he gave me that for nothing as well. So it, it was interesting to, as a an experience of the kind of solidarity and generosity of the neighbours of that landfill economy, where th where goods were passed were quite easily and cheaply between different neighbours on a needs basis. Part of the idea was uh, of getting that house was to be able to have my own household and home and space. Uh, so a lot of anthropologists, when they go off to do field work, they live with a family, and they're very much associated with that family and kind of uh, almost are incorporated into their kinship structures and things, which is one way of doing things. I think in the neighbourhood where I was working, that would have been quite difficult to be strongly associated with a family because there was a lot of rivalry and competition between the families, so it really would have been an obstacle to my research if I was living with one particular household or neighbour because it would have been difficult to establish trust and friendship with the other neighbours. I would very much have been seen as you know, their guy. Um, so I was very happy to be able to establish my own space um, and I think you know, earned a little bit of the respect of other people. So if you want to know a little bit about what the atmosphere was like in the house, you know, my partner uh, is an artist and as well as an academic, and so she often had kids around for different art projects, for um, playing musical instruments, and so the house was really loud and kind of colourful, and, but you know, sometimes it was good to be able to shut the door and say, no, this is our space. Well, a typical day for a classificador in the neighbourhood would be to get up very early, uh, quite often before me. Uh, some of them would get up and look after their animals. After that, they would then think about going to the 
landfill. Of course, first of all, they would have a few mates. So mate tea is the Uruguay national drink. So bitter tea, the drink drunk out of a gourd. So they would have a couple of mates and with the family. And then the man, uh, usually the man, would be the one who would set out to the landfill, sometimes on a horse and cart, sometimes on a motorbike, on a car. Start at the landfill if they're working there, maybe about seven in the morning. Maybe they'd be working at a municipal plant as well. And those shifts would start at about six in the morning as well. So it's quite a morning activity, recycling, actually. They told by midday they'd have done a large part of their day's labour, done several large bags of materials called bolsones to be sold. So they would often evaluate their labour day on how many bolsones they'd done, five or six. They'd get home happy, they'd done six bolsones. And they'd also come back um, for sort of lunchtime with, uh, to have a family meal. And on their horse and carts or in their trucks, they would have picked certain things from the landfill or the plant that they could be that could be shared with the family. So maybe they'd have some uh, toiletries that they could bring back. Um, so they might have a lot of perfumes or of deodorants uh, or of nappies. And maybe they've got 13 bags of dog food. Maybe they've got, uh, you know, four large bags of chicken. Uh, so various things that they can bring home and sort of go through and show their wives and say, what do you think about this? And, you know, shall we keep it? Shall we sell it? How should we use it? Is it rubbish? Should it go back to the landfill? That sort of thing. The main bulk of their income will quite often come from the sale of these stock recyclables, so plastics, metals, cardboard, uh, or paper, white paper, for example. And then on the other hand, they also have different materials that they bring home for their family. So food uh, would be an important one. They would also bring back things for their kids, so maybe clothes or toys that they found. Uh, the dump trucks from schools were particularly important because you might have old pens and white paper and things like that that could be shared. Uh, but at the same time, they still had an idea of something really is rubbish and there's no way that I would give that to my child or give it to my wife. Um, but, you know, other, th other criteria was this is definitely something that has been thrown away uh, unnecessarily, um, quite often by rich and affluent people. And actually, this is something that I can recover you know, and, and share with my family. Quite often I would pick up things or show things to classificadores and say, well, you know, is this interesting? Uh, this could be good. And they would say, no, that really is rubbish. Um, so, I mean, for example, the cooker, the idea of having the cooker that, you know, I'd scrubbed for, for days and days, but never managed to get the oven working without sort of giving out a putrid smell and, you know, really not much heat at all to be able to cook anything. So a cake would have to be in there for about five hours for it to cook. Um, so my neighbours would castigate me a little bit for that. Another important um, criteria for deciding whether something's rubbish or can be sold has, is the experience that people have at, of selling goods at market. So quite often these recyclers at the weekend they have a stall at a second hand or flea market and they would sell goods there and through experience of 10, 20, 30 years at market they begin to know what things can be sold. For example one a colleague specialised in old perfume bottles. So he had quite a quite a beautiful range of these different ornate bottles. And of course, you know, if they're cleaned out and washed and they could be refilled with different perfumes. Um, for some reason, I, I would quite often pick up things that really were rubbish and wouldn't sell. Only once did I actually have a stall at one of the markets. This is when I was leaving Uruguay and wanted to get rid of some things. Unfortunately, it was summer and I wanted to get rid of a lot of clothes that we'd accumulated during winter so I was selling a lot of woolly jumpers and um, didn't go very well. <laughs> the composition of the waste stream changes from summer to winter right and at different parts of the year as well uh, so in the summer you have a lot more little plastic bottles you have a lot more of them because it's hot people are outside they're drinking soft drinks 
um, obviously you know, doing other things like eating more ice cream and things like that as well. And so you have more of that type of waste. I mean, other times of the year you have a, you have particular types of surplus that can be recovered from the waste stream. So I mean, for example, we worked uh, over the Easter period and we receive trucks from the main chocolate manufacturers and quite often get broken Easter eggs, right? So Easter eggs are particularly frail, you know, they can be easily smashed or broken compared to, you know, a more chunky solid sort of bar of chocolate. So you'd end up with quite a lot of broken chocolate making its way in large plastic bags to the dump. I mean, stuff would come up all the time. Because my partner is an artist, I would quite often be looking out for things that would be interesting for her. So one time we got a big lot of decommissioned traffic lights, you know, scores of sort of red, green and amber. Uh, and I thought that would be really interesting to do something with. Um, well, you, ha you have the dark side as well. You have materials which really are, you know, worrying or, you know, I'd never found personally myself, but there's plenty of stories of body parts or, you know, dead bodies turning up or, you know, a coffin turns up and then there's a body inside of it and things like that and the land for maybe has to be shot for a day or two while they investigate what's going on so these are just I mean a lot of stories but uh, one time a lamb a live lamb sort of was bundled out of one of the trucks and started running around the landfill and the classifiers were all running after this lamb and trying to get it so they could put it on the barbecue and sort of you know, caused this kind of chaos uh, sort of chaotic scene um, and then there's you know stories about envelopes with you know, thousands of pesos turning up as well, or dollars, or you know, these kind of issues. Um, there are a lot of interesting things. It's just actually there's so many that it's difficult to to remember particular like, examples because every day I would come home with something a little bit different. <laughs> there's recyclers who work all over the city in different ways. So some work in horse and cart. Some have now entered into the formal recycling plants. Some still semi-clandestinely enter into the landfill. Some receive materials on occupied land. Entering into the landfill and recycling in an environment where there's trucks all around, there's heavy trucks, there's a shift in terrain, um, there's potentially hazardous materials that have been dumped there. Um, it's known as being one of the most dangerous parts of the recycling landscape. But at the same time, workers have done the job for generations, maybe at least decades. So they're very well attuned to the dangers, they're very well attuned to what, what parts of the landfill they can go to, what parts might be slippery or hazardous, and how close to get to the trucks before they can move away. So they're very experienced in managing the risks. At night when there was everything else fell silent, you could just hear the, the beeping of the reversing trucks. They were quite attuned to the, to the trucks and to the hazards, so that there wouldn't actually be a lot of accidents there if they were retrieving materials. People tend to concentrate on different materials and they try and work it out so that they are not competing. But because the, the group that work there know each other, it's very rarely would come to blows or any sort of real dispute. Metal is by far and away the most valuable surplus material that can be found. So uh, you quite often have quite a few people who would only work metal as opposed to you know somebody who might do a little bit of cardboard and a little bit of plastic, say. But, Metal is enough to sort of provide an income for quite a few heads of household. The, the ability to work out and 
categorise, identify different metals with slightly more skilled than being able to identify cardboard, right? So if you came from, it might, might well be that a father would show his son how to how to identify and work different types of metal, how to extract different types of metal from an alloy or from, from a compound. So if a car part came in or if a motor came in, how to take out the copper from it, how to separate the copper. Uh, so sometimes he would work with hammers and different set of tools to be able to separate the metals and identify them uh, they also work with magnets um, so, so to some degree there was a bit of um, expertise being passed on uh, from maybe father to son but also amongst colleagues as well so between younger classificadores and older ones so I remember of uh, one older classificador telling me how he'd explained to many of his other colleagues how to classify different types of metal there are uh, power dynamics and sort of hierarchies within the landfill. There are people who are more respected. There are people who are slightly, slightly better off. So it was a couple of these figures, of the slightly more respected, older figures. They'd buy some more materials from other classificadores, and they would, you know, charismatic. They would also help other people out as well. And they were the ones who would organise every year a big party at the at one of the Montevideo's parks, where they would have a big barbecue and play football and kind of celebrate the end of the year all the all the lads basically from the from the lads from the landfill and so I was quite touched to be invited and he said no Patrick you don't you don't pay anything you know you know everyone else chipped in some money for the barbecue so don't worry you don't need to pay anything uh, and invited me along and it was maybe what you'd expect lads larking around playing football having a barbecue I got thrown into a very dirty lake <laughs> sort of end of year japes uh, tried to get someone else in there it didn't really work um, but it was you know it was all, it was all good uh, the kind of mucking around basically a continuation of the kind of mucking around and laughs and jokes that go on at the landfill every day so it's very it's quite a macho environment uh, it's also a very jocular environment where people are having you know having food fights with rotten fruit uh, or they're playing practical jokes on each other and that kind of thing it's very common so there was, it was like that but with a little bit more alcohol because people are actually quite um, sober when they're working at landfill because of all the hazards that are involved um, but they could obviously let loose a little bit more when they were at the end of the year and it ended up in a bit of a sing-song and some classificadores having a bit too much to drink <laughs> I certainly miss uh, you know, my immediate neighbours in particular I became godfather to my neighbour's child, youngest child, when I was out there, Shanaina, um, and developed a really close friendship with my immediate neighbour in particular. Many people, friendships with many people who were all very good to me, uh, who let me into their lives, who let me into the landfill, who were the, you know, there was absolutely no obligation on them to do so. And uh, so there's a lot of trust was established, you know. Thankfully, I'm able to keep up with most of my neighbour's lives through their steady stream of Facebook updates. Uh, but unfortunately, my immediate neighbours don't actually have Facebook, so I haven't seen what my, how much my goddaughter's grown, or you know how things are going at the at the cantera, uh, at the dump. But I will be making a visit there probably in December, so I'll be really excited, and everyone there is going to be really excited to meet our little daughter, as well. So they were all urging us and wondering why, at you know almost 30 years of age, uh, we hadn't had any children. So now uh, we can go back and say oh, we've done it. <laughs> Uh, on another note, I, I do miss some of the um, more hands-on activity that I used to get up to in, in Montevideo, being able to build this house, uh, being able to keep 
pigs and chickens. So I've started to actually do some of that here as well. So uh, I've got a couple of chickens. And uh, so that reminds me of what the kind of things I used to be doing in Montevideo. Put up a shed at the weekend, reminded me of putting up, attempting to put up many buildings uh, and sort of temporary structures with some of my neighbors in Montevideo as well. Not I'm particularly good at it, but uh, I do enjoy it. <laughs> so it's a nice break from the uh, working in the library and my PhD to be able to combine it with some of that more practical activity. Now back in Cambridge, as an intern at the Centre for Science and Policy, Patrick is writing up his PhD thesis and exploring ways that governments can look at waste as a resource. Anthropology is quite a useful and malleable discipline in being able to set out an initial research proposal but then arrive on a site and see that you're looking at and picking up different dynamics. So what I ended up studying wasn't necessarily what I'd set out to study, although broadly I was always looking at how the links between the formal and informal economy worked in the sector of around the landfill and recycling. I was always looking at the socio-cultural aspects of working with waste over generations. Um, I was looking at territory and the quite, what's it like to live alongside a landfill and etc. But what I also ended what I ended up focusing on in my study because I was able to arrive and capture this process was the transition of some workers from a sort of collective organisation of workers to formal sector municipal plants being the model for recyclers. So I was able to track the journey of one group of workers and friends and colleagues from this informal cooperative to being formal sector employees uh, for some of them for the first time in their in their lives uh, at the same time as delving into the history of waste and waste infrastructure and management in Montevideo as well. So that all started to f feed into a broader study uh, of Montevideo's waste landscape, I suppose, both historically, geographically, and also embedded in this pungent waste landscape around the landfill itself. Initially, I was doing some research on the circular economy in preparation for a workshop in the Centre for Science and Policy. And so th that was an interesting experience coming back from Montevideo and finding that something like the circular economy is quite a topical, popular uh, issue and topic for policymakers in the UK. That's been interesting to put those kind of institutional policy-based debates into conversation with my much more hands-on um, experiences of uh, the waste economy and recycling in Montevideo. The idea of the circular economy is usually used in comparison to a linear economy where a product is designed and made based on raw materials, goes to a consumer, it's consumed, then goes to a landfill and that's the end of it. So that's the linear idea of the economy or product. A circular economy would be that a material would be made not necessarily from a raw material but from a recycled material. So already you're entering into the entering into the circle of a material that's been in use already. It's transformed into a product. Uh, that product is to some degree consumed, um, or the, the aspects of it that can be consumed. But obviously there's still a lot of value and potential left in it. So it's reused, reincorporated into something else, and it never actually goes to the landfill. And so the you know, maximal idea of the circular economy is that everything in a product is actually able to be reused, taken apart. There's some who emphasise that actually we need to be a lot more 
sustainable in our consumption and, and limit consumption and not just imagine that everything can be reused um, in a cost-effective way. But certainly, uh, I think we've got a lot to learn from my um, fieldwork companions in Uruguay. The recyclers and classificadores were called by a, a sort of progressive priest in Montevideo, Padre Cacho, they were known as ecological prophets. So it'll be interesting to see whether their practices of recovery, reuse, actually begin to have a wider echoes uh, in the economies and policy chambers of developed countries. The biggest threat to the to the recycling, the informal recycling economy in, in Uruguay is from incineration technologies, really. So um, there's big multinational incineration companies which try and pitch their technologies to different countries. The difference between uh, introducing those technologies in somewhere like the UK compared to somewhere like Uruguay or Argentina or Brazil is that in those countries there are thousands of people who make a living from recycling those different materials, whereas in the UK you might have some workers for a formal sector recycling company, but there's very few uh, who are actually working informally, certainly nowhere near the numbers that you have in Latin America. So you really need to take into consideration how many jobs are you actually eliminating and destroying by bringing in a state-of-the-art waste-to-energy um, facility. The other big threat really to informal sector recycling and that kind of way of life is formalisation itself. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the benefits of formalisation in terms of, you know, stable minimum wage, um, better health and safety conditions, working under a roof, um, various social security benefits. But at the same time, uh, in Uruguay, those benefits and positions have been, have been restricted to a very small number. Um, but the materials are rechanneled to that small number. So there's a possibility that this larger population of recyclers who perhaps don't want to join a recycling plant because they have their own way of life and they've been doing it for generations, that they become disenfranchised and dispossessed of the materials that they've worked with all their lives. One of the challenges of being out there was going out, doing this hard work at the landfill in a recycling plant where I'm, you know, I'm not just hanging around, I'm actually lifting up the big bags. I'm, you know, classifying the different materials, I'm in amongst the dirt. I come home, I have a shower, and it's, I kind of feel like that's the end of my day, but of course it's not, because I need to write up the notes of all of everything that's gone on in the day, and that's, that's my real work. You know, that's my real work as a, as a PhD student, as an anthropologist, and if I don't have any record or notes in which to, to think about and develop ideas and, and write up a thesis and publish articles, then I don't really have very much at all. So that was quite a challenge to come home uh, after the landfill and sort of sit down and have to sit for a few hours and write up notes. I think sometimes just the interpersonal relations and conflicts were quite difficult because, you know, people would fall out with each other quite a lot amongst themselves. Um, and so trying to navigate that and be everyone's friend and not fall out with people was a bit of a challenge um, and you know keep some sort of professional distance and not become embroiled in, in particular feuds and taking people's sides and things like that was difficult because sometimes it's unavoidable um, so sort of walking that tightrope was was quite difficult um, but at the same time there's you know a, a huge amount of things I miss I miss you know being surrounded by all these people I miss the sounds of the neighborhood um, not just the sounds of the landfill, but coming home to the neighbourhood and everyone sort of shouting and, bueno, hey, walk away, you know, this sort of idea. And, you know, it's here it's much more of a quieter life, <laughs> unfortunately. I miss a little bit of the wheeling and dealing as well, you know. I miss the, you know, someone coming around to sell something to you that they've found. I miss, you know, 
the chatter or the you know the constant sort of buzz about the place that you don't have so much in in Cambridge I think <laughs> or maybe you have it but it's in a different way. <laughs>